You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Hello, I'm Janet Smith. I teach philosophy at the University of Dallas, an excellent liberal arts school in the Southwest. And this is the third of an eight-part series on sexual ethics. In the last couple classes, I have been covering natural law and the meaning of human sexuality. And today I'd like to take a slightly different branch. I'd like to talk about a new mode of moral reasoning, which isn't incompatible and in fact I think is a part of natural law reasoning. And that's what's known as personalism which is John Paul II's particular contribution to our understanding of ethics and particularly sexual ethics. You could say that in the past, the teaching of the Catholic Church has been based almost strictly on what's known, as I've been explaining it, as natural law ethics and virtue-based ethics. In a sense, this is based on what's called a cosmological view of the universe, that you look at the universe and it's an ordered universe, and that universe is ordered by laws, regularities that are predictable, and that we've learned that it's best for us to live in accord with these laws because they've been put into place by a very benevolent lawgiver who is God himself. And so what we need to do really is to look at the external world, see how it operates, and live in accord with it. Now, that's still perfectly valid. It's a, it's a perfectly excellent way of going about doing ethics. But we'll notice that, especially if you take a look at the new universal catechism, that there's a new focus that was building really in um, the documents of Vatican II, which many people know, Carol Voitier, John Paul II, had an enormous influence in the formulation of those documents. And they have what is called a Christological focus rather than a cosmological focus. Again, the cosmological focus focuses on the cosmos. The word cosmos itself means ordered, on an ordered universe. Whereas a Christological focus focuses really on the person of Christ himself that Christ is the perfect human being. And if we want to have an idea of what we're supposed to be, we should look at Christ. And ask him, well, in what ways is he perfect? Well, many ways, every way that's perfect. Of course, he's perfect. But for us, for today, the things we want to focus on is that he is a perfect lover, right? And he's the perfect self-giver. And that this is behind everything that John Paul II is doing when he's looking at the human person. He says, I've got a paradigm of the perfect human person who is Christ himself. And you'll see that the ethics of Vatican II and the Universal Catechism very much center on a kind of Christological view with making natural law certainly a component of this. Again, what personalism helps us see is that when we're obeying the laws of God, we're not doing this just to please a lawgiver who has laid down these laws. It's not for his benefit that we're obeying these laws, but really these laws are for our benefit. Right, that when we obey the laws of God, we're the ones who will prosper. We're the ones who will benefit from this. So today we're going to look at a mode of doing philosophy which is known, again, as personalism. I think it's perfectly compatible with natural law because you're looking at the human person and you're asking what is the human person, how should the human person be treated, how should the human person act. So the first thing to ask really is what is a person? What does it mean to say that human beings are person? Dogs aren't person, cats aren't persons. What does it mean to say that human being is a person? Well, John Paul II actually uses a phrase that we find in the philosopher Kant. And again, although I'm talking about a Christological point of view, the book I'm working with today, Carol Wojtyla's Love and Responsibility, is a philosophic work. And he uses philosophic principles in this work and makes virtually very little, at least, reference to Scripture. Every once in a while he'll find a commandment or some phrase from Scripture that summarizes perfectly what he wants to say Again, his, his analysis here is what is known as a, a phenomenological analysis. He looks at the phenomena itself. And he uses Kant. He uses Kant to begin with. And he says that the human person is an end in himself, right? An end in himself. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, there's two things that something can be in this perspective. One is an instrument, right? That things have an instrumental value. Other things don't have an instrumental value. They have an intrinsic worth. There's something that's valuable in and of themselves. Now, when we talk about, you talk about a tree being having instrumental value. You chop it down, you make a desk out of it, you make chairs out of it. Even a dog and a cat are really of instrumental value. They are for our benefit. They amuse us, they keep us company, they give us something to love. 
Now, you might say, well, it seems unfair to talk about a cat or a dog being an instrument, and it does in a sense. I mean, they're very valuable, and, and you can really have a great deal of an affection for an animal. But you know if it came down to it, if you ever had to choose between your most beloved pet and your child, there'd be no question. You wouldn't hesitate. If we had to chop down the most beautiful, the longest living tree in the world to save a child, we would do so in a minute. And we would do so because the human being has intrinsic worth, has infinite value. Again, a human soul is something that is going to last for an eternity. The tree won't last for an eternity. The tree can last for centuries, but it can't last for an eternity. It has a temporal worth, the same with a dog and a cat. And so we know that if we have to sacrifice one for another, we're going to sacrifice what is temporal for what is eternal. So each human being has this eternal value. Where do they get it? Again, where do we get it? Why can we say that about human beings? Why do we say we have this intrinsic worth, this eternal value? What we see is that we are persons. And we talk about the Trinity as being three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each one is a person. Now, what it means to be a person, again, is to be free, meaning you are not determined by laws in your being that, that instinctually make you do what you do. We do have instincts, we do have laws in our being, but again, we can freely choose to go with those or we can freely choose to resist those. So we're not simply programmed. We are self-determining. We make ourselves be what we are. Again, a dog or a cat doesn't decide to be kind or generous or loving. They're trained to be so, but they don't make choices that will determine their character, right? Whereas a human being does make choices that determines his or her character. We are also capable of grasping what is true. We're capable of knowing something that is eternal and lasting, unlike, again, cats or dogs or anything else. We can appreciate a beautiful painting. We can appreciate a beautiful song. We can appreciate beautiful music, which we have no evidence that anything else can. And this puts us in a, a transcendental level, a level of things that are eternal, lasting, and true. And this is what makes us persons. This is why we can't be treated as instruments, because we're not for the sake of something else. We are for our own selves, okay? We are ends in ourselves. Now, John Paul II makes this truth about the human person as the absolute fundamental basis of his ethics. And then he asks, well, what is the right way to respond to a human person? And first he tells us the way it's not right to respond, which is, again, to use a human person. We are not to be used. We are not instrumental. We don't have instrumental value. We have intrinsic value. And so you can't use other people. You may feel like that at a time. You may feel like you want to use your husband just to, to run your errands for you. You may want to use your wife just to make your meals for you and to provide sex for you. But if you're not respecting your husband as a person, your wife as a person, you're treating them as they ought not to be treated. Even store clerks, all right, you should not use them simply in a instrumental value. Here's a human person standing in front of you who has a whole rich emotive life, who has a whole rich intellectual life of some kind, and there's no reason that you should just sort of snap at this person, expect them to do what you want like you would your car or your washing machine. You are interacting with a human person. So John Paul II spends quite an intensive amount of time speaking about our tendency to use each other and how that is absolutely inappropriate. Again, that human beings are not to be used but are to be respected and to be respected as ends in themselves. As a matter of fact, John Paul II goes further than that. He says that the only proper response to the human person, the only proper response to the human person is to love the human person. That's the only proper way to treat someone else. Now, let me read a passage here where he makes this point. And he's talking about the commandment in the New Testament that says that we must love our neighbors. Again, he'll make reference to Scripture now and then, but again, uh, not so much as his authority as an instance of what it is that he's talking about. He says, The commandment laid down in the New Testament demands from man love for others, for his neighbors. In the fullest sense, then love for persons. For God, whom the commandment to love names first, is the most perfect personal being. We're told to both love God and our neighbors. He said God is the most perfect being, so he deserves love first and foremost. He goes on to say, the world, whole world of created persons derives its distinctness from and its natural superiority over the world of things, that is non-persons, from a very particular resemblance to God. 
The commandment formulated in the New Testament demanding love towards persons is implicitly opposed to the principle of utilitarianism, which is unable to guarantee the love of one human being, one person for another. The opposition between the commandment in the Gospels and the principle of utilitarianism is implicit only in that the commandment does not put in so many words the principle on the basis of which love between persons is to be practiced. Christ's commandment, however, and the utilitarian principle seem to be on different levels, to be norms of a different order. They do not deal directly with the same thing. The commandment speaks of love for others, while the utilitarian principle points to pleasure not only as the basis on which we act, but as the basis for rules of human behavior. Again, we see a, a switch here between what we saw in the first session where we talked about utilitarianism and hedonism and emotivism and the whole notion that we're supposed to be seeking pleasure in life and that we can use other things for our pleasure. We want our VCRs, we want our beautiful cars, we want our beautiful women and our beautiful men for pleasure. And John Paul II is saying that's not the highest goal in life. The highest goal in life is not pleasure, but the highest goal in life is love. Again, we are meant to love one another. He says this very succinctly here. He says, a person is an entity of a sort to which the only proper and adequate way to relate is to love. So, we're obviously left with an enormous question here, which is the question is, what does it mean to love a person? What is love? Now, John Paul II in this very thick book does a very detailed analysis of these questions. And first he gives us what he calls a metaphysical analysis of love. And then he gives us what is called a psychological analysis of love. And I'm going to cover both of these analyses of love in a fairly sketchy fashion just to sketch out the steps that he takes. But again, I highly recommend a reading and a rereading and a rereading of this text. It's wonderfully rich and it's unlikely that anyone would catch what he's saying the first time through. But this metaphysical analysis of love, some people are frightened by the word metaphysics, right? But metaphysics means that you're trying to get at the very being of something. You're trying to get at its very essence. Again, you're trying to, at this instance, try to work out a kind of definition, of, but not just a, a, a dry one-sentence formulaic definition of an entity, but try to, try to get a picture of it, a portrait of it, seeing it in the fullness of its being. And he's trying to figure out for us, what is love? And what does it mean to love another person? What should our response be to this person? What should our, the way we behave to this person be if, if we love another person? And he talks about several different, you might call, elements of love, several different, you might even call them stages of love, but what he's going to talk about here are different, I would say, stages or parts or kinds of love. He talks about, let's see how many I have here, seven different words or concepts or realities he's going to be analyzing. He talks about attraction, he talks about desire, he talks about goodwill, he talks about reciprocity, he talks about sympathy, friendship, and then finally betrothed love. The first element, he says in love, really is attraction, right? That there has to be something, well, again, if this could be a thing or even better, of course, a person, something that attracts you. You see something in this person or in this entity that you find a value, you, it's good, it's something that draws you to it, right? That's the first thing. All love begins with some sort of attraction towards an entity, either a thing or a person. Now he says, it may stop there. You might just find something attractive. You, we find it all the time. We walk through stores, department stores. We find many things attractive. We don't stop. You go to a party, you find many people attractive, but you don't talk to all of them, right? But then all of a sudden, you will see you have a, what he calls a desire, right? Not just an attraction, but a desire. And a desire means, in some sense, you want to possess this, maybe just in a momentary fashion. You want to stop and you want to look at it, right? Not only are you attracted, not only does it catch your eye, not only does it draw you as a, some sort of value, but you want to move towards it. You have this yearning or longing in some sense to go after this thing that you find attractive. So again, in a store you may stop and look at something. In, in a museum you stop and look at something. At a party you say, I'm going to go over and introduce myself to that person. That person has something about him or her that seems attractive to me. So you move in that direction. You go over there and you chat. Now. It depends on what sort of um, pursuit you're on, but let's say that you are in the pursuit of possibly true love. So in some sense, you want to get to know this person. Again, it could be a thing. You want to get to know this, you pick up a book. It attracts you. You look at it. You've got more than attraction. Now you've got some sort of desire. You may quickly lose interest. 
you may quickly say, no, this isn't for me. You may quickly find out that this person has other characteristics than the one that immediately drew you, and you'll say, well, I don't see any point really to pursue this any further. But what he's also saying is this with this desire that you have, this wanting to sort of have another person, is that you should also be thinking about, in a sense, what is best. What is best for this person? What is best for you? Is it a good idea to pursue this? Is it a good idea to pursue this relationship? Now you might find out, suppose you are a single person and you're, you're looking possibly for someone to date and ultimately someone to marry, and you were talking to this person, you find out this person is engaged to someone else, maybe married to someone else. Well, all of a sudden your attraction, your desire are what we call dampened, right? You say, oh, there's no possibilities here. I should, in a certain sense, step back. I should squash this desire to some extent. At any rate, you shouldn't just desire to possess this person. One of the reasons you would step back is you would say, well, it's not good for this person. It's not good for this person or for me to continue in this relationship or even to try to build a relationship. We don't have one yet. But you may find at any point in a relationship, not only that you should be pursuing because you want to possess this person, but you should always be asking what is good. What is good for this person and what is good for myself. And this is what John Paul II calls the stage of goodwill. You're looking out for the good of this person. At some point you might say, I'd certainly like to possess this person, but I don't think it would be good for her or good for him. You might even think I could win him or her over. But say a, a young man might meet a young woman who has certain goals in her life and he says, I don't fit into that picture. It wouldn't be good for me to derail her from what it is that she wants to do. Or a young woman might discover, she says, I don't think I'd make a good wife for this man. He has certain ambitions and goals that I can't see myself fitting into. So out of goodwill, out of a concern for the other, you might decide to step back, right? But anyway, you have to move through these different stages. All of these are parts of love. Love requires attraction, love requires desire, and love requires goodwill, the thinking of what would be good for this person. Now again, you might think of this scenario, again, you're at a party. You've been attracted, you have a desire, you go over, and you discover that this person is available. And you think, well, it wouldn't be harmful for this person for me to invite her to dinner or a movie. I think I'll do that. Because now you're looking not only for a one-sided relationship. Up to this point, it more or less has been. You are attracted, you have a desire. You have no idea that this person might also be attracted to you. But obviously, love can't go forward unless there is what is called reciprocity, right? That the two of you then create a relationship with each other, that you want your love to be returned. You want that person to find you attractive. You want that person to desire you. You want that person to have goodwill for you. And now you're entering into what he calls a reciprocal relationship, where you're discovering each other, right? You're discovering something to build together. And he says one of the most important parts of this reciprocity is what he calls sympathy, right? That you're entering into a sympathetic relationship with another. And this is very important. I talked very quickly at the beginning of the difference between using someone and the difference between respecting and loving someone. And that you could just use someone. You could say, I like this person. He or she is so beautiful. I like to have him on my arm. I like to go out and show him off. I feel great. You know, I, I, I. You're talking ego here. And you could actually have two egos working together. You could have someone else feeling the same way about you. I like the way he dresses. He's a snappy dresser. I want my friends to see me with this guy. Are you really interested in him? <laughs> Possibly not at all. It's simply two egos who are sort of having a reciprocal egoistic fit here. Whereas John Paul II says, no, again, that's using each other as an object, that what you need to do is to care about the other, is to care about the other's feeling and to have what is known as an affectionate relationship, an effective relationship, that you wouldn't want to do anything that would embarrass or use this other person because now you're, you're building on this goodwill that you are meant to have for this person. I, not only am I attracted to and desire this person, but I desire what is good for this person. There's some, some wonderful passages here in this talk about sympathy. He says, and sympathy in itself needs to be governed by some sort of response to the truth. You can get all caught up in feelings, and we'll talk more precisely what some of those feelings are when you're entering into a, a love relationship. He said that you can all of a sudden love so much being in love that you pay very little attention to who it is really that you're in love with and, and who this person is. But he talks about the absolute need for this sympathy, for this fellow feeling. The word sympathy, as a matter of fact, means, sum comes from the word with in Greek, and patho means to feel. So you feel together with someone, 
when you have sympathy. And he speaks of it this way. He says, the subjective force of sympathy gives human loves their subjective intensity. All right? Mere intellectual recognition of another person's worth, however wholehearted, is not love. All right? Mere intellectual recognition of another person's worth, however wholehearted, is not love. Meaning, you can see all sorts of people that you think are terrific, terrific value, terrific person. You think they're terrific. But you haven't entered into a relationship there. A mere recognition of their goodness doesn't mean that you have any kind of relationship yet, any kind of love. I mean, this whole notion that you might fall in love with Mel Gibson, you know, or Meryl Streep or something, you can't, right? You can have an attraction for them and a desire for them, but you can't have love because love requires this reciprocity and love requires this sympathy. He says, only sympathy has the power to make people feel very close to each other. But then love is an emotional experience, not the result of reflection. Right? Love is an emotional experience. Sympathy brings people close together into the same orbit so that each is aware of the other's whole personality and continually discovers that person in his own orbit. I have to admit these are rather lovely words when you find yourself falling in love with someone, you find them, as he says, in your orbit. You sort of have a sense of where they are. You have a sense that they might be coming. You have a sense of what they might be feeling, how their day is going to be. You found out what their day is going to be tomorrow, and you're fearing with them if they've got something fearful going on. You're rejoicing with them if there's something rejoicing going on. You're feeling with that person. He calls this sympathy. He says, precisely for this reason, sympathy is that very important thing the empirical and palpable manifestation of love between man and woman. It is thanks to sympathy that they are aware of their mutual love, and without sympathy, they somehow lose their love and are left feeling once more that they are in a vacuum. And as soon as sympathy breaks down, they usually feel that love has also come to an end. Now, he doesn't think that love has to come to an end if sympathy fails, but you can rebuild the sympathy, and love means a kind of commitment that goes beyond the sympathy but that sympathy is a very integral part of loving and you want to keep it there and if it goes you want to bring it back. All right, this notion of feeling with another person, that it's mutual and it's a kind of, the word that we would use often for this is connectedness. I feel connected. He says here if you lose the sense of sympathy, he says you feel once more that you are left in a vacuum. Right? That when you're not in love you can often feel as if you're so alone and you're in a vacuum and you're not connected to anyone. It doesn't necessarily have to be romantic love here. We're talking about romantic love because we're talking about sexuality. But the connectedness, obviously, you can feel to your sister, to your best friend, to your parents, that we don't need to only talk about romantic love here, but he's building in that direction. But the sympathy that you have in love is that you have for anyone you love. Certainly, you can think of it for a love of a child, the same set of feelings. So you, if you have a boyfriend or a spouse who has a big presentation at work tomorrow, you might feel entirely for that person. You would feel the same way for your child that you loved or your sister who you loved or your parent who you loved who was going to be doing something or a friend. But this sympathy is absolutely crucial for a love relationship. He says the next kind of love that he wants to talk about after sympathy really is friendship, right? And that friendship again builds upon this sympathy and it really builds upon a sense of not only do I want what is good for you and you want what is good for me, but now we talk about we, right? We want what is good for each other. You're starting to think of yourselves as a unit, not just that I'm interested in you and you're interested in me, but that we are a unit, right? That are starting to look out for what is good for each other. So these are the stages of love, or I don't know if it's fair to call them stages, but kinds of love, elements of love. Attraction, desire, goodwill, reciprocity, and finally, sympathy and friendship. Now, the kind of love, though, that he's moving towards in this book, as I've mentioned, is I call it romantic love, but we want to even go beyond romantic love. We want to go to what he calls betrothed love, which is really the fundamental of conjugal love, the, the love that really belongs within marriage. He talks about betrothed love as being quite different, really, from friendship. It's a move beyond friendship, right? It's a move beyond friendship in the sense that you want to give yourself totally to this other person, right? that when you get married, when you get engaged, let's talk about engagement first, it should come first, right? That you really want to say, I want to give my whole life to you. We want to knit a life together. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about two becoming one and going forward in life together. 
So you move beyond friendship. Obviously, you can have many friends, right? Because with friends, sometimes it's cordoned off into certain portions of your life. You have friends that you go to ball games with. You have friends that you play tennis with. You have friends that are lifetime friends that you share different interests in music and art, books. But with the betrothed love, the betrothed friendship, if you will, between a male and a female, is something far beyond any sort of set of interests that you have. I'll talk about that more later. It's far beyond that. But the, the real point is, is that you want to share your entire life with this person. You want a sense of totality. And this is his description of this love. He says, betrothed love differs from all the aspects or forms of love analyzed hitherto Its decisive character is the giving of one's own person to another. The essence of betrothed love is self-giving, the surrender of one's I. This is something different from and more than attraction, desire, or even goodwill. These are all ways by which one person goes out towards another, but none of them can take him as far in his quest for the good of the other as does betrothed love. To give oneself to another is something more than merely desiring what is good for another, even if as a result of this another I becomes, as it were, my own, as it does in friendship. Betrothed love is something different from and more than all the forms of love so far analyzed, both as it affects the individual subject, the person who loves, and as regards the interpersonal union which it creates. When betrothed love enters into this interpersonal relationship, something more than friendship results. Two people give themselves each to the other. I'm going to go into this question of betrothed love a little bit more in the next half hour. But here I just want to mention that it means this real mutual self-giving, that you have two people who are making this complete commitment to each other, which again, you don't make in friendship. You want your friendships to last forever. You may or may not. You may say, well, I know we're just going to be friends this summer. But if you get someone who really matches you on many, many levels, you'd like this person to be your friend for life. But you do know that it could end. Any friendship could end. And you certainly don't think that necessarily you're going in any way, if this person moves to another part of the country, you'll move to another part of the country. But in betrothed love, you do. Where you go, I'll go, right? Because you have completely knit your life together with this other person. Now, the point to this is that spouses, betrothed love, the individual is totally irreplaceable, right? In no way can you replace this particular person in your life. Every human person is irreplaceable. Every person is unique. But in this case, it's irreplaceable to me, right? There's no way I could ever replace this person in my life. Again, there's other relationships that are this way besides spousal love. You could say the same thing with your children. Your children are irreplaceable. Your parents are irreplaceable. And even your friends are irreplaceable. But you don't make, in any of those relationships, you don't make the same kind of commitment that you make to a spouse, which is a lifetime, everlasting commitment. Your children are going to move across the country. Some of your children will. You won't probably move with them. But again, if your spouse moves across the country, you are attached, and you should move with that person. We'll cover this more in a moment. We just finished talking about what John Paul II calls the metaphysical analysis of love, where he was trying to offer us a definition of love and show us the different elements that were in love. Now, the other thing he does in this book is he tries to show us what he calls a psychological analysis of love. It really tries to show us the sort of physiological and psychological steps that we go through or should go through in our coming to love another person, and in a certain sense, to choose a spouse. What steps do we go through in this process of learning how to be a lover and learning how to choose a spouse? And in his psychological analysis, he begins, of course, with the realization that, again, I mentioned this in one of the earlier talks, that all of the information that we get from the world comes through our sense data, right? And at first, we respond to the world, responding to another human person. The first thing we notice is the way they look or the way their voice sounds. We have some sort of physical knowledge of them that comes through our sense data. And then this arouses in us some sort of emotion. It arouses in us some reason, again, to be attracted to another person. Now, he mentions that there are two major sources of attraction to another person, which he calls sensuality is one, and the other is sentimentality. He says, we have to admit, the first thing we generally notice about another person, and he might say that males especially observe about females, is beauty. Right? The first thing you notice, again, an attractive person. They don't need to be, of course, the beauty of a model in a magazine, but you like their eyes or you like the way they move their hands. It's beautiful to you. There's something about this person that you find attractive. Right? But this is what he would call largely a physical value, right? something that is physical in your 
response to a person. He says it's often hard to move beyond this or to see beyond this. We've all noticed this. We've all noticed people who are so mesmerized by someone's beauty that they are not really able to see that this person is perhaps selfish or maybe mean or cruel. And you wonder why this person sticks so much with this other person. You say, why? You say, well, well he's clearly very handsome or she's clearly very beautiful, but is that enough? <laughs> and some people aren't really able to move beyond that beauty until years later that wears off. Then the relationship, of course, will dissolve. But John Paul II, of course, is not saying you shouldn't be attracted by beauty. He calls this actually a raw material of love. He says this, he says, sensuality by itself is not love and may very easily become its opposite. At the same time, we must recognize that when man and woman come together, sensuality as the natural reaction to a person of the other sex is a sort of raw material for true conjugal love. I guess we would speak about this as chemistry between two people. It's not yet love, but he says it's the raw material for love. It's, you notice this is a person, again, that you want to talk to, you want to get to know. He says, by itself, however, it most certainly does not play that role. The yearning for a sexual value connected with the body as an object of use demands integration. It must become an integral part of a fully formed and mature attitude to the person, or else it is certainly not love. A current of love, as desire does, it is true, runs through sensuality. But if it is not supplemented by other nobler elements of love, those of which we spoke in part one of this chapter, it remains desire and nothing more, then it is certainly, quite certainly, not love. Sensuality must then be open to the other nobler elements of love. So I said that this is the starting point. Again, it's a raw material that you have this kind of chemistry between two people. But as we see in the soap operas and we see in movies, that this chemistry seems to lead people immediately to jump into bed with each other. And John Paul II would say that you're short-circuiting your whole growth in love if you do that. You have not yet gotten to know this other individual as a person. All you know is that this person is physically attractive to you. He says there's another raw material or first element of love, which he calls sentimentality. And this is more, instead of just physical value, it's an emotional value. He says this is, for instance, if you, again, see a woman who stands in a certain way or moves her hands in a certain way, you might think that she is just the, the picture of femininity. Or a woman might, of course, do this to a man, that he is pure masculinity. He has all the virtues of being a male that she desires. And what he talks about here, he says that men and women tend more towards one or to another that women tends towards sentimentality and men tend towards sensuality. That men tend to be attracted to women for their physical attributes and women tend to be attracted to men for something that they might consider their emotional attributes. He talks about it in this way. He says, in this respect, there seems as a rule to be a marked difference between woman and man. It is pretty generally recognized that woman is by nature more sentimental and man more sensual. We have indicated already one trait which is symptomatic of sensuality, apprehension of sexual value residing in the body as a possible object of enjoyment. Now this form of sensuality is more readily awakened in the man, more readily crystallizes in his consciousness and in his attitude. The very structure of the male psyche and personality is such that it is more readily compelled to disclose and objectivize the hidden significance of love for a person of the other sex. This goes with the relatively more active role of the male in such love and also imposes a responsibility on him. Whereas in the woman, sensuality is, as it were, covert and concealed by sentimentality. For this reason, she is by nature more inclined to go on seeing as a manifestation of affection what a man already clearly realizes to be the effect of sensuality and the desire for enjoyment. There exists then, as we see, a certain psychological divergence between man and woman in the manner of their participation in love. The woman appears more passive, although in a different way she is more active. In any case, her role and her responsibility will be different from the role and the responsibility of the male. He's claiming here that in a sense what the male needs to do is to, again, control his sensuality and in one sense become more sentimental, to look for the feelings of the woman and the characteristics of the woman, to be moved to an emotive level. And the responsibility of the woman is to realize that behind her sentimentality, behind her attachment to emotions, is really a sensuality. To realize that there is something sexual going on here. It's not just something that is on an emotional level. And if the two of them realize these different tendencies of their psyches, the different tendencies of their being male or female, they will, again, be prepared to build a better relationship for one another.
He says some interesting things here about sentimentality that I think are worth drawing out. He says, in the eyes of a person sentimentally committed to another person, the value of the beloved object grows enormously, as a rule, out of all proportion to his or her real value. Sentimental love influences imagination and memory and is influenced by them in turn. This perhaps explains the fact that a variety of values are bestowed upon the object of love, which he or she does not necessarily possess in reality. These are ideal values, not real ones. They dwell in the mind of a sentimentally committed person, often after sentimental love has summoned them up from their hiding place in the unconscious into the field of consciousness. Sentiment is fruitful within the subject, since it is the subject's wish, desire, dream that these various values should be found in the object of his love. Sentiment calls them all into being and endows that person with them so as to make the emotional commitment still fuller. He calls this the idealization of the object of love. He says it's well known, and we've seen it all the time. A young man will fall into love with a woman because she has blue eyes and blonde hair and think that she must therefore be generous, kind, committed, loyal, etc. Finds out that perhaps she's very few of these. A young woman may see a man and think because of his strong jaw he's courageous and strong and wonderful, and then later find out that he's selfish and egotistical. It may take a while to find these things out if you're excessively sentimental because you will endow this beloved object with all the perfections that you think the beloved object should have. Because really, I think what we're seeing, and he talks about this somewhat later, this whole notion that there's something divine in the beloved, right? And you see something that, and beauty is a divine thing, so when you see something beautiful, again, and you don't, we're not talking necessarily about someone who would be so beautiful as to be a movie star, but some quality, some characteristic, could be physical, could be effective, that you think is beautiful, you have touched something that's divine. And so then you bestow in your imagination all these other qualities on the person. And what John Paul II says, is in order, again, to have a true love, is that you have to truly know this person, right? You can't love a fantasy. That's all you're really loving, and you're not loving a person. That you really need to get to know the person to whom you're attracted. The physical attraction isn't enough. The sentimental attraction isn't enough. You really need to get to know this person. He says you really must learn to integrate love. He said you must learn to make it a part of a whole picture. The whole picture is the person. And he talks about the necessity for this integration in this way. He says, a salient feature of sexual love is its great intensity, which indirectly testifies to the force of the sexual instinct and its importance in human life. This intense concentration of vital and psychic forces so powerfully absorbs the consciousness that other experiences sometimes seem to pale and to lose their importance in comparison with sexual love. Again, we can see this all the time. We can see that people are drawn to each other and that they feel this love for each other that is so intense, with the sexual love is so intense, the sexual attraction is so intense that they can't pay attention to anything else, that they are completely drawn to the other person so much so that everything else loses their attention. He says, you only have to look closely at people under the spell of sexual love to convince yourself of this. Plato's thinking on the power of Eros is forever being confirmed. If sexual love can be thought of as a situation internal to a person, it is psychologically an intensely pleasurable situation. A man finds in it a concentration of energies which he did not know that he possessed before this experience. For this reason, the experience is for him associated with pleasure, with the joy of existing, of living, and acting, even if from time to time discomfort, sadness, or depression break in on it. These are the salient characteristics of love in its subjective aspect, and it is in this form that it always constitutes a concrete situation internal to a human being, unique and unrepeatable. At the same time, however, it aims not only at integration within the person, but at integration between persons. The Latin word integer means whole, so that integration means making whole, the endeavor to achieve wholeness and completeness. The process of integrating love relies on the primary elements of the human spirit, freedom and truth. Right. So what he's saying here is that if you're going to truly love another person, you are going to have to make sure that you are free and that she is free and that you are living in the truth in order to be in love with this person. He says a really free commitment of the will is possible only on the basis of truth. 
He says, every situation has its own psychological truth. Sensual desire has one truth, emotional commitment another. Right? What he's saying here, again, is that because of our sexual attraction to another person or our sentimental attachment to another person, we may not be seeing the truth. And we really have to work very hard in order to see the truth about another person, to know whether this person that we are pursuing, that we're falling in love with, we very easily can, again, mistake a sexual attraction or a sentimental attachment as being love. Whether this really is a choice that we want to make, whether it really is this person to whom we want to make the kind of commitment that betrothed love makes, right? Are we just being deceived? Are we deceiving ourselves? by the physical attraction of this other person or the sentimental attachment that we have to this other person. So he wants to talk about how is it that you can know, how is it that you can know that this is the person to whom you should make a commitment. I want to read another passage here that talks about this attachment that we have to a person of the opposite sex and the way that we need to move away from simply a sensual and emotional reaction to a kind of what he would call an objective evaluation. He makes an enormous distinction here between what is subjective and what is objective. Subjective really means our own internal state, our own internal state of being. And we can be, we can think we are, again, wildly in love with another person. We are so attached, we're willing to go to the ends of the earth for this other person, right? We may not know the person much at all. That could be almost strictly a subjective experience. Again, the person is beautiful or the person we think is courageous and we are ready to go after this person. But do we really know the person? We need to somehow get ourselves outside of our subjective response to this person into objective reality and say, what am I committing my, who am I committing myself to? How can we, in a certain sense, pin ourselves down to make certain that we just don't go flying off because of some physical or sentimental reaction and discover who it is that we're really dealing with. He says, this is what we need to keep in mind. He says, every person of the opposite sex possesses value in the first place as a person and only secondarily possesses a sexual value. Psychologically, the love of a woman and man is an experience at the core of which is a reaction to a sexual value. You can't and you shouldn't take the sexual value out of relationships between males and females. It's there, again, it's the raw material of relationships. He says, in the context of that experience, the person is apprehended primarily as a human being of the other sex, even where there is no special emphasis on the body as a possible object of enjoyment. But the mind is simultaneously aware of this human being of the other sex as a person. This knowledge is of an intellectual, conceptual kind. The person as such is not the content of an impression, for no essence can be so contained. Since the person is not the content of an impression, but only the object of conceptual knowledge, it follows that a reaction to the value of a person cannot be as immediate as a reaction to the sexual value connected with the body of the specific person, or looked at more broadly with the total phenomenon constituted by a human being of the other sex. What is immediately contained in an impression and what the mind subsequently discovers in it affects the emotions differently. Nonetheless, the truth that a human being of the other sex is a person someone as distinct from anything is ever present in the consciousness. This it is that awakens the need for the integration of sexual love and demands that the sensual and emotional reaction to a human being of the other sex be somehow adjusted to the knowledge that the human being concerned is a person. So in every situation in which we experience the sexual value of a person, love demands integration, meaning the incorporation of that value in the value of the person or indeed its subordination to the value of the person. This is where we see clearly expressed the fundamental ethical characteristic of love. It is an affirmation of the person, or else it is not love at all. all right, now what we're talking about here is that you've got this, again, essential or sentimental attraction to a person. And this person needs to be affirmed, right? Again, does not need to be used, right? And this is, this is key that he talks about love as being affirmation. This affirmation of a person, I've seen this when I watch my students who are courting. I recently watched a young man and a young woman who fell in love very quickly. I think they said they nearly got engaged after about, well, I, I shouldn't scandalize people, I think it was something like three weeks, right? They were both more mature students. They were in their later 20s. But so obviously their sentimentality and their sexuality really kicked into gear, right? 
and they were very taken with each other. You could just see this, again, this, they were in each other's orbit. And when they're away from each other, you can tell that they are still in each other's orbit. They've just recently married, but there was, throughout their whole relationship, this desire to treat each other with respect. And they were very attached to what is known as the virtue of chastity, right? That they wanted to integrate the sexual and sentimental attachment that they had to each other with a respect for the other person. And this really does mean that one needs to have control over one's sexual desires. That one is very much saying that my sexual desires are subordinate to my interest in you as a person. And this young man was so interested in this woman that he would never dream of getting her pregnant before marriage or having sex with her before marriage because he would say, I respect her so much that I would not want to put her through that situation. Right? I respect her so much that I know this love is going to last. I know it's not temporary. I know we don't have to jump into bed with each other because this is going to last. This is a lifetime thing. And what is important now is for us to really to get to know each other, right? To really to get to know each other as a person. And the way to do that is for me to show her that I am not being driven by my sexual desire, that I really enjoy her company, that I want to get to know her, what her dreams are, what her desires are, what her values are and to let her come to know me. And then if we gave in to sexuality at this point, it would obscure our getting to know each other in a deeper fashion. We would get to know each other sexually. We would get to know each other in a certain sense emotively. But would we really get to know the person? What chastity really is, is a virtue that's in service of love. This is how he describes it. He says, the longing for true happiness for another person, a sincere devotion to that person's good, puts the priceless imprint of altruism on love. But none of this will happen if the love between a man and a woman is dominated by an ambition to possess, or more specifically, by concupiscence, born of sensual reactions, even if these are accompanied by intense emotion. Such emotions give love a relish, but do not always contain its objective essence, which is inseparable from the reciprocal affirmation of the value of the person. It is impossible to judge the value of a relationship between persons merely from the intensity of their emotions. The very exuberance of the emotions born of sensuality may conceal an absence of true love, or indeed outright egoism. Love is one thing and erotic sensations are another. Love develops on the basis of the totally committed and fully responsible attitude of a person to a person. Erotic experiences are born spontaneously from sensual and emotional reactions. A very rich and rapid growth of such sensations may conceal a love which has failed to develop. For this reason, we have stressed the need to distinguish between its objective and subjective aspects in our analysis of love. Now again, what is it then that is this objective reality that will help you test whether or not your physical, sentimental, emotional response to a person are ones that are worth following through on? I mean, you might have a very intense physical reaction, a very intense sentimental reaction to another person. But how do you know again that this is a person to whom you should commit yourself? Well, John Paul II again says that your commitment must always be rooted in the truth of the person. Now, what does that mean? It means this. Again, that a person takes a lifetime to love and a lifetime to get to know. That again, this betrothed love is a love of total self-giving. You want to give yourself completely to another person. And in giving yourself completely to this other person, you want full disclosure. Now, can we change over a lifetime? What we are today, we're going to change tomorrow. We hope for the better, right? But if an experience changes, becoming a parent changes us, moving to another part of the country, getting a job changes us. And we're always shaping and developing. And he said love has to be prepared for that. But love has to be prepared then for this whole lifetime of getting to know another person. So the first thing always to ask oneself is that can I see myself spending my lifetime with this person? Not can I see myself going off to the Tahiti for the weekend with this person, or not can I see myself for this next year having this wild, wonderful relationship with this person, but can I see myself growing old with this person? Do we have values in place? that we can say that we want to get to know each other, we want to live a life together. And this young woman and man that I spoke about that who fell in love so quickly, they had that between them. They're both very committed to their church, they're very committed to education, they're very committed to family, and they quickly found that 
behind this physical, essential response to each other, this chemistry between the two of them, there was real commonality in what they wanted to do with their lives, all right? And one way they knew that, of course, was again this being willing to wait until marriage to have sex. That they said sex isn't the most important thing in this relationship. What is most important is making a witness to each other of our love for each other, making a witness to other people of our love for each other. That this is true love. This is not just chemistry that's compelling us. That I found something attractive about this person, and I found that this person possessed more than just this physical attractiveness. Possesses a whole world of riches as a person that I want to commit my life to. Another way of doing that, another way of testing that, of course, is to see do I, not only do I want to spend my life with this person, but again, if, do I want to be a, a parent with this person? Do I want to be the mother to this man's children? Do I want this woman to be the mother of my children? And this is a very important question to ask. Do I want my children to hear his stories? Do I want them to share his values? And this is how you get to know whether the person that you are attracted to is really a person with whom you want to share a life's work. So that John Paul II is saying that it's very important to develop this virtue of chastity, this virtue of self-control over your sexual desires, so that you don't immediately act upon them, so that you can stand back from them and really get to know the person with whom you're dealing. Again, this is not saying that your sexual reaction is a bad thing. It's saying that it's a very good thing. It drew you to this person. But now you have to, in a certain sense, harness that wild horse, pull it in, and make it drive you where you want to go and to make certain that you want to get there with this other person. So the essence to learning how to become a true lover in John Paul II's sense, a betrothed lover, one who is going to give yourself completely to another person, is not to repress your sexuality, not to deny it, but to govern it, to put it in service of the truer and higher values of the human person. So he's saying that, again, our word chastity means self-mastery and self-control, and that if you have control of your desires, because I saw this young man and this young woman have, very clearly very attracted to each other, but very clearly in control of those desires, that they have now made a pledge of a marital commitment that will carry them through their lifetime. So in the next hour, we're going to look at the abuses of this marital relationship. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.